0: leverage is your friend. When it's going your way, it's a disaster when it goes against you. And the more leverage you have, the more intense those feelings are, both on the upside and the downside.
1: Welcome to Generational Arbitrage. I'm Tyler Neville, sitting down with Brian Reynolds, the chief strategist at the eponymous Reynolds Strategy. Brian was the chief strategist at several brokerages before starting his own firm, And he started his career on the buy side as a portfolio manager at David L. Babson & Company, a credit firm. He knows the history of financial engineering better than anyone on the street. His clients are the biggest pension funds, money managers, and he doesn't do much media. So Brian, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me on. Good to be here. Yeah.
1: So I've read pretty much every sell-side research bulge bracket firm to niche brokers, and I found they concentrate on weird, idiosyncratic parts of the market It's like they handpick weird pedantic data to sound smart. Whereas your research is very logical, coherent on how markets actually work. Can you like tell us how you're the only one on the street doing this stuff and give us a little bit about your background?
0: Well, there's two things uh, to my work. One is that I had really good mentors. I had mentors that go back to the 1920s, 30s, and 1940s, and they taught me to follow the money. It's really simple. Mm -hmm. This is a, you watch what big institutions are doing. You look where they're putting their money, and that's where it's going to have a price impact. The other thing is that my mentors gave me a lot of responsibility in a lot of different areas. So most people on Wall Street concentrate on one area, like stocks or bonds or within the bond market, treasuries or corporates. I did a little of all of that, Um, especially in the early days of shadow banking. I was in charge of structured finance starting in the early 1980s when it became a factor for markets. So I bought one of the original credit card loans. I bought one of the original auto loans. I bought one of the original manufactured housing deals. That sector turned into subprime later on. And so I helped. I was there when the modern uh, structured finance business began. And I also had experience on the equity side, too, at Babson. And so you could see how the flows from the credit market would begin to impact the equity market. Because when I started in this business, the junk market didn't exist. Now the junk market's about a trillion and a half. And it's gotten so large that it's often the tail that wags the dog. So the course of my career just happened to coincide with the creation of modern shadow banking. And so I can relate what, what what's going on in one area to how that's going to impact another area of finance.
1: Yeah. So can you walk us through, you know, brief introduction on your, your daisy chain of capital and kind of how it works uh, just for a recap of from from the last interview we did?
0: Well, we've had a number of financial cycles since 1990, which I view as the beginning of modern shadow banking, and shadow banking is just non-traditional lending. And that's where our nation's public pensions, who are the dominant global investor, they're bigger than any institution on earth, they dwarf the Fed, they need to make 7.5%. And that's problematic because yields have been in a secular decline since 1982. So now yields are much lower than the pensions need. That means the pensions had had to get aggressive in the credit markets. They hired credit funds in the 1990s, like, like long-term capital management, that invest very aggressively in credit. They lever up our economy. They buy incredible amounts of debt from companies that puts cash into corporate balance sheets. Modern CEOs are incented to get their stock price up because during my career, we've also had the creation of these things called stock options, which can reward CEOs dramatically if their stock price rises. And so companies have taken all this money coming from these bond sales and used it to buy back their stock.
1: And the credit's gotten worse and worse since you began too. You, I think you said way back when it was just, everything was AAA
0: rated, right? In the 1970s,
1: yeah.
0: uh, most corporate debt was AA, you know, it was AA or AAA. And now most corporate debt is just a notch above junk, which yep. shows you how much we've levered up our financial system. During the period from the great financial crisis in 2008 up until the end of 2019, just before the virus hit, the credit market grew by 86% cumulative. Nominal GDP only grew about 43%. So we massively levered up our economy over 11 years, and almost all that money went to buyback stock. We levered up our economy to artificially inflate stock prices.
1: And, and talk about the size of the buybacks, because I think most people don't realize the big impact the numbers are just staggering of buybacks and now it, it turned off briefly in 2020 from the
0: uh, pandemic but now it's really going into overdrive correct we're in a different environment now where there's still going to be buybacks but now we've got an additional factor driving equity prices so from 09 2009 through 19 almost all the rise in stock prices was due to buybacks if you add up all the other main investors in stocks. they added up to only a little more than zero. And so people put money into ETFs, but they took money out of mutual funds. Pensions were sellers of stocks, heavy sellers of stocks. and so you add all that up and it added up to almost nothing. It's all driven by buybacks, which is about which was I think about six trillion over that time. On now
1: a four trillion total market cap, right?
0: Oh, uh, it's a $40 trillion. But the thing is, is that whatever gains in stock prices there were for 11 years was almost entirely due to buybacks. Mm-hmm. People abandoned the stock market. Yeah. Now, post-pandemic, or as the pandemic starts to wind down, we're in a very different environment. The buybacks were dead for about nine months. In last December, I noted they were starting to come back. First companies borrowed to get a lifeline to get through the pandemic. Then they borrowed some more to refinance their debt and term it out, lower their costs. And now this starting in December. They started to buy to issue debt to buy back stock. Mm-hmm. But now we've also got incredibly strong retail participation, which is crazy, especially in the form of equity call options. It's like these people missed out on an eleven-year bull market. And they've been called by the internet to say, "Hey, we're not going to miss out on this." So they're pushing up stocks, especially meme stocks. But in general, they've been a big driver of equity prices since last summer, the summer of 2020. And so now you've got a multi-pronged bull market driven by debt-fueled buybacks and by retail investors. Mm-hmm. And, it's- and they're trained to buy. The, they're trained to buy the dip, and that makes it very frustrating for institutions to be able to get into stocks at decent price points.
1: Yeah. And it also seems like the, the giant institutions like BlackRock and Vanguard have grown so large, they constrict the floats, right? So every incremental dollar from those buybacks and, and retail participation kind of creates that you know, uh, super sensitivity and convexity in prices, correct?
0: Exactly. Well, investors as a whole did nothing for 11 years. Internally, they switched from active, actively managed mutual funds to passively managed ETFs. And those ETFs can't buy or sell unless they get redemptions or inflows. So it's passive and that's not really available to trade. And that makes the markets, the stock market less liquid. And when you add in a big buyer like retail, like we've seen over the last year, that can cause stocks to surge. So
1: where are we in this, this giant cycle? It turned off for a little bit in 2020. Everyone was anticipating you know, a credit crisis. It didn't happen because the Fed and, and the government basically came in with liquidity upon liquidity. Are we restarting that cycle all over again of, of the bull market?
0: I think we're restarting it. I think it's going to be stronger and potentially longer than the last cycle. I think it's going to be stronger because at the beginning of the pandemic, city and state finances were in tough shape and their revenues were down. Now it turns out their revenues are up. They're getting waves of capital gains payments from these short-term trades from the retail investors. Plus the economy's coming back and plus they've got federal stimulus money. They're increasingly voting to try and make up their pension shortfalls from the last decade. And they're doing that by putting more tax money to work in the credit market. So I think we'll have a more intense credit boom than the last one, which was record-setting, which was the biggest credit boom in the history of finance. So, so I think it has have, a chi- oh, go ahead.
1: How that works is essentially like the government will, will say, hey, say it's the state of New York, right? Uh, and what they do is they vote, we're going to allocate more money to our, our unfunded pension rather than infrastructure to rebuild the subways. Or they're basically so far on the hole on the pension system, they
0: need to make up that gap, correct? Well, New York's kind of a special situation and all the ones with the big uh, subway systems have Mm -hmm. been hurt the worst. But in general, the states are bringing in more money. And Mm -hmm. so they are allocating things, money for things like infrastructure, but they're also taking a bigger slice of those inflows and putting it into the pensions. And the pension trustees vote to put it into credit because they don't like the risk of equities. Interesting. But they put it into levered credit, which comes back to the stock market with bigger buybacks, because you get more corporate bonds being sold by companies, which means they have more buybacks.
1: And the pension allocation votes, Brian's got one of the best charts in the business. It just goes up and to the right of of money getting allocated to to fixed income, correct?
0: Well, not only does it go up and to the right, it goes up and to the right at an increasing pace. Because for the 11 years of the last credit boom, cities and states raised taxes. Specifically to put money into pensions, and now tax inflows are growing because the economy is growing because of capital gains because of the federal stimulus. So now they're putting even more money to working credit to try and address the pension shortfalls that have grown up in re- that have grown in recent decades.
1: And where are we at, like the on on the aggregate, where? Because I think it was like seventy percent funded, like maybe a year or two ago. Has that grown?
0: It was about two thirds funded. Okay. And it hasn't really grown that much. There was a drawdown during the pandemic as markets fell. Markets recovered, so you got a little bit of a bounce back. Um, But in general, it really hasn't changed in the public space. In the corporate space, it's been much more fully invested. So those now are almost 100% invested, but all the growth at the margin is coming from the state and local pension sector. And so they're pretty much from a big picture standpoint about in the hole now as they were going into the pandemic. Only now they have more free cash flow. And they're taking a greater percentage of that cash flow and using it to address the pension shortfall. And their goal, if they make 7.5%, is to eliminate that shortfall over three decades. I don't think this cycle is going to last for three decades, but while they're putting the money to work, you get a very intense credit boom. Mm -hmm.
1: And we're seeing that for sure. In one of your notes, you talk about uh, the inflation across uh, you know, the 10-year ten, ten span of, of break-evens and, and how things further out are kind of saying inflation is not going to be that bad. How do pension funds view that with these negative real rates? Um, do they even care about that? Or do they just want the yield to satisfy the pension? They'll take a little bit of the negative real yield.
0: Well, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And this is this is not my forecast. This is the forecast coming from credit market investors or fixed income investors. If you look at the break-evens on two-year tips, five-year tips, and 10-year tips, investors in the fixed income market have concluded that inflation is going to peak in less than two years and then trend back down. So your time frame is very important if you're a pension and how you time that. Let's just say that you get a modest rise in inflation over a 10-year period. That actually helps the pensions meet their obligations, because it allows them to pay off future retirees in cheaper dollars. So that actually lessens the pension funding. But as I said, most fixed income instruments aren't priced for a big rise in inflation over 10 years. They're priced for a big temporary increase in inflation for two years, but then it goes back down. So that means you get a temporary easing of pension needs, which means from a big long-term perspective, a 30-year perspective of a pension, Things haven't changed. They're in the hole. They need to invest aggressively, put more money to work and credit to try and make their bogeys.
1: So that's wh- why you see the money just continuously coming in regardless. Whether of- the
0: inflation expectations have been going down as they did over 11 years or up in the last year, it really hasn't changed the pension dynamic that much. That's how badly the pensions are underfunded, is that these swings in inflation are almost a rounding error for yeah. pensions.
1: Interesting. So so one of the things, and you've called pretty much every cycle ending, um, given you, you look across the capital structure, and it's very scary when these things turn. You, you, call, you have a couple canaries in the coal mine um, that you, you talk about when to pay attention to, because that's a sign that the market's not funding, the, the fixed income market's not funding super levered companies anymore, correct?
0: Right. So I look at some of the junkiest junk companies in the country to see how willing and able the credit market is to fund them. And this goes back 20 years back in the you know in the in the subprime cycle when people kept thinking the disaster was right around the corner it took 4 years for the disaster to happen. And then the same thing happened over the 11 years boom market that ensued after the financial crisis of 08 where people kept thinking the disaster was right around the corner but it took 11 years And the reason was that pensions kept putting more money to work and kept funding these really low quality junk companies. And right now they're funding them, as the credit market is funding them as aggressively as ever. They're showering them with money. Junk bond yields are flirting with lows. Even if junk bond yields rose 300 basis points, they would still be expensive relative to stocks. That's how strong these pension flows are. And that's why I think it's going to be strong. It's going to be durable and it will probably extend for a while. Interesting.
1: Um, and, and so are there any companies in particular you want to name or you kind of want to avoid? You
0: know, Yeah, I like, can, I like to avoid talking about specific companies in public. I found that there's no real upside to that, especially since people can view these interviews years later and the yep. situation may have changed. Um my point here is that the stock markets, we're in a bull market and it's likely to persist for a number of years, driven partly by financial engineering, but partly also by retail, as opposed to the last cycle, which was all financial engineering. So it has the potential to be stronger, has the potential to lift all boats. And we're seeing with retail, you know some of the strangest stocks you'd ever think of be the leaders. So that's hard to, you know, unless you're actively on an internet chat room it's hard to figure out what the next hot stock is going to be so if you watch this video in two years it'll probably be something different than what's going up right now yeah yeah and that yeah
1: i i'm i'm concerned that that's uh you know the end of cycle type behavior but but judging from what you're saying about the fixed income markets you know maybe this is the beginning and you know as the the floats of these these companies gets constricted more by that passive flow and the call option and, and you know retail participation maybe this turns into a super raging bull market.
0: Uh, well, I think most of my most of my institutional clients would agree with you that this is worrisome and might be the end of cycle behavior. But I don't think it is because we went through the same thing in the 1990s. People quit their regular jobs to day trade <laughs> in the 1990s and People in the institutional sector felt that that was end of cycle behavior and it went on for seven years. Yeah. And it's much easier to day trade now than it was then because you actually had to leave your physical job in the city and go to your home and spend your working hours in front of a computer that was hardwired to the internet because there was no Wi-Fi back then and get on a trading app and trade all day. Now you can do it from your phone while you're at work. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it's pretty absurd. So, so there's some conflicting stuff in the market I got to ask you about, which is you have one of the most uh, iconoclastic views on this. Everybody talks about the repo market being like, oh, the world's going to end uh, all this. There's $500 billion that moved into treasury bills and sitting at the Fed's repo facility, which basically means like there's too much money and not enough stuff to invest in. Uh, in my That's my simpleton view of it. Can you walk us through what you're seeing there?
0: This is the opposite of the problem we had in the repo market before the pandemic. If you go back to 2019, we had the repo panic. And the problem then was that there was not enough money to go around. The Fed had been overly tight and wasn't supplying the financial system with the money it needed. And people thought that was going to be the end. It was going to be a disaster. And the Fed figured it out. They sorted it out. They applied the appropriate amount of money. And the stock market surged for the rest of that bull market until the pandemic hit. So if you look back through the money market history, there's been panics, there's been been, there have been crises. A crisis is Lehman Brothers, when people start defaulting and people won't fund projects. This is not a crisis. This is a panic. And the panic is the opposite in that you're correct. There's too much money floating around. If you look at bank deposits, they've been going through the roof. Part of that is the stimulus program. To me, I think that's bullish because there's money looking for a home, it's going into banks at zero or the money market funds. And the reason the money market funds are buying treasury bills is because five years ago, they changed the rules to make it difficult for money market funds to buy commercial paper, which is IOUs of companies, and instead force them to buy treasury bills. So money market assets have surged. Treasury bill issuance has surged because when we issued this debt during the pandemic, we did it with treasury bills, But then just as in 08, we start terming out that debt. We start issuing it for longer terms and drawing down treasury bills. In the last few months, we've had a drawdown of treasury bills. At the same time, there's been an increase in demand. My mentors taught me to follow the money. When supply, with the issuance of treasury bills goes down and demand goes up, all this money coming into the banking system from stimulus, that pushes the price up. Which pushes the yield down, which is why we have slightly negative interest rates on Treasury bills on on the front end, yeah, on the front end of the curve. So I think that's ultimately bullish because we talked about the craziness of the new retail investor pushing up stocks, but there's still a record amount of retail money in banks, and that's growing. That's going to earn zero for a couple of years until the Fed raises rates. I can see people being cautious now and not minding earning zero, but history has shown. That if you're in a bull market and bank depositors are earning very little, eventually some of that money seeps out and look, looks for a better return. So you would, I would expect to see the retail environment accelerate or increase in the next couple of years, even though I think many institutions think that it's going to peter out. And this is a sign of late cycle investing. I think it's a sign of early cycle investing.
1: Yeah, I, I love uh, the the opposite viewpoint. It, and honestly, I it's so logical and makes so much sense to me. And now BlockWorks is obviously like trying to bridge the gap between macro finance and crypto. And this is probably a good transition because you are uh, probably one of the most veteran uh, across capital structure people I've known and, and have seen everything. And your next thesis is that we are going to see the subpriming of Bitcoin. Um, Can you walk us through that? And for a guy in your your generation, how that all makes sense and and where you're coming from and and where it's going to go.
0: Well, I was not a fan of Bitcoin. And full disclosure, I now own some Bitcoin. I bought some this year on some of these declines. Not a lot, but I own some. Um, Until December, I was not a fan of Bitcoin. And a big reason was the stability of Bitcoin or the safety of Bitcoin because people's Bitcoin wallets were being stolen. And that's not good for institutions. Institutions don't want to invest in an asset that can disappear because their wallet gets stolen. So I had thought there would be very limited institutional participation, and there was limited institutional participation. Until December, when a firm, a large investment firm, announced they would start lending against Bitcoin to institutions. To me, that was a game changer because that's the same thing we did at the start of a subprime, when I say we, Wall Street. Mm. That's the same thing we did at the start of a subprime cycle. We started wrapping assets, in this case it was subprime mortgages, into packages and levering them up. We did it again with commodities from 2009 to 2013 during that commodity bubble. We packaged them in these wrappers. We levered them up. And that added a bid both to subprime and a bid to commodities. It made them more volatile. And then when those wrappers and that leverage blew up with subprime in 07 and 08, with commodities in 13, 14, and 15, those commodities went down like a souffle. So now we're starting the same process of wrapping crypto into these packages and levering it up. We've had a few more developments in, in the last couple of months that have solidified my view. Of the upcoming subprime of Bitcoin, we had a major custodian announce that they were going to start looking into custody, custodying Bitcoin. To me, that's a huge factor in getting institutions to accept Bitcoin, because now you don't have to worry about the custody once this once this program goes into place. If you propose an investment program in Bitcoin to a cl- institutional client now, you could spend a Days, weeks, or months talking about the safety and the custody of Bitcoin. If you're with one of the top three or five bank custodians, you just say, oh, we're custody in bank XYZ. And you have a 10-second discussion instead of a month-long discussion about custody. It just clears the way for all the safety and custody issues. And then you can focus on whether Bitcoin is appropriate for the client or not. Today, the day we're doing this interview, a second major custodian announced they're going to start setting up blockchain custody and trading. So when institutions like this take these steps, it puts pressure on their competitors to follow along. We saw a major insurance company put some Bitcoin in their general account this winter. That's gonna pressure other insurers into doing so. And insurers are the second biggest driver of these credit booms after our pensions. We saw a major credit card company announce the beginnings of a product tied to some cryptocurrencies. That'll pressure other credit card issuers to do the same, and as what these all, institutions as these institutions come on board, that will lend a bid to Bitcoin, but also make it more volatile as we lever it up.
1: And and what it really is just doing is kind of like Mike Milken kind of did this with, I guess, uh, the infrastructure for the internet, right? He and and wireless, um, you know, f- phones. He basically lent money to a lot of these companies to grow the infrastructure. Is that sort of what's happening with the Bitcoin? Um, exactly.
0: Evolution? And we just saw that this week. We saw a company for the first time ever issue a corporate bond with the express intent to buy Bitcoin with the proceeds. And the, th- the thing for me wasn't that that company issued that bond to buy Bitcoin. It's the fact that credit investors raced to buy that bond to fund this lending of Bitcoin. So. This firm wanted to borrow four hundred million for seven years at six and an eighth percent, and the deal, according to Bloomberg, was three times oversubscribed, which is incredible. And then, when it trade, then when it when it, after it priced and started trading, the price went up, the yield went down. So now, for the first time ever, we have a price of what Wall Street is willing to finance a speculative lender because this was a junk bond. A price at what they were willing to fund a speculative lender's levering of Bitcoin. And that price is around 6%. That may seem low because pensions need seven and a half, but similar junk bonds, similar ratings, similar maturities were yielding two and 3%. So it was actually a high price to pay, but that's logical because Bitcoin is such a volatile asset. I've done a study that so shows Bitcoin's volatility is equivalent to Tesla stock. That's something that Wall Street is very, comfortable with, handling that type of volatility and that type of price action. So if you have the same type of price and volatility in a new asset like Bitcoin, we're willing to finance it, but at a higher yield or a higher cost than a plain vanilla stock loan. So now we have a guideline that says, here's where we're willing to fund the levering of Bitcoin. And here are all these billions of Dollars from large institutional investors that want to finance the lending of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So this is similar to when we first came out with subprime bonds, where people packaged subprime loans into these structures, these special purpose vehicles. And it's credit institutional investors bought them hand over fist. We're seeing the same process start now. Incredible.
1: And, and they're three times oversubscribed is, is pretty amazing for something that's just going directly into Bitcoin.
0: And that really- For a half billion dollar deal, who is was triply oversubscribed. The very first one. Normally, new structured finance products take a while to gain acceptance. This got acceptance right off the bat. Interesting.
1: And and so that also puts pressure on other firms. So the, the firm that you, we all know the firm you, who did this but if you are a competitor to that firm and this starts working it creates almost another everyone will will take the financing if the returns are there so it kind of creates that subpriming uh i need to keep up with the growth of this company that i'm competing against
0: correct? and we know now that there's a lot of financing available and now we know the cost of that financing you just have to plug in the equation to see if you're comfortable with that risk and Wall Street, I think, is more comfortable with this now because this is the same thing that we did for uh, fiber optics for WorldCom in the 90s, the same thing we did with pipe, pipelines for Enron in the 1990s, same thing for subprime, same thing for commodities. So we're very familiar with this. We know how it ends, but these things usually go on for years and years until a disaster hits. We're at the beginning of a leverage cycle, not the end of it. And, and so...
1: Can you walk us through how does it end? Because this is generational arbitrage. So I want to know, how does the next generation pick up the pieces from this? Or or do they participate in this growth and make up that wealth gap?
0: It probably ends badly. It probably ends with another bailout and get pushed down to another generation. we started this in the 1990s blow up. And we had somewhat of a bailout. And that got pushed to the next generation. Then we had the 2008 financial crisis, and we did a bigger bailout and pushed that onto the next generation. And then we had the pandemic, and we had a bigger bailout, and we're pushing that onto the next generation. And the difference is that with each successive one, the Federal Reserve has gotten more adept at coming to the rescue. So I think the next one will be bad, but I think the Fed will jump in fairly quickly and push it down the next generation. It's kicking the can down the road, but we've gotten very good at it. And really, it just ends in, in a very inflationary environment, is, is not necessarily because, as I mentioned, credit investors have concluded or, or made this you know, you look at the pricing of various instruments over time, mm-hmm. that it inflation spikes for the next year or two, and then it peaks in, within two years, and then it comes back down. And part of that is the fact that we're seeing changes in demographics and commuting patterns because of this pandemic. So you'll see a depression in commuter rail prices. They're gonna to have to cut their prices to get people on. Whereas now there's more people living outside of cities, there's a bigger demand for cars. So car prices are going through the roof. That's not gonna continue eventually, you know, forever. Eventually, everyone who wants a car will have a car and supply and demand will come back into balance. And the credit market's saying that's, that happens in two years. Yeah. But there's an interesting economic paper that I've written about. I wrote about it in early April. It's uh, at the NBER. It's by a group of economists who've looked at, I think, either 17 or 19 pandemics. I forget off the top of my head, but going back almost 700 years to the Black Death. And they've looked at the post pandemic economic environment following those pandemics. And typically, you get at least two, sometimes three or four decades of higher GDP growth per person, higher wage growth per person. It changes the labor capital relationship. So there's more capital spending, which is deflationary. It makes people more productive so they can have higher wages. So you'll see not just inflation, but you'll see shifts and maybe some deflation mixed in depending on the capital labor ratio. But in general, coming out of a pandemic, it's pretty good for the economy. It's pretty good for the typical worker. Interesting. So, so just lots of different
1: cross-currents going on. But on, on the whole, the engine of, of debt-fueled buybacks just keeps kind of chugging along and providing capital to, to where
0: the market wants it most. That's where people are incented. And again, my mentors taught me to follow the money. And the big money is our pensions want to earn an above-market yield and credit. So they've got to invest very aggressively. That puts cash into corporate balance sheets when they sell their bonds. CEOs are as incentive as ever to get their stock price up. And they use these flows to do that. Unless they sure. can turn their company into a mean company and have the retail people take it up. Either way, the CEO gets paid.
1: Right. I mean, that's, it's, it's something else. So, so two things, and then we can kind of wrap up, but so how does it end? It, will, will Bitcoin, is it generally the subpriming asset that, that ends in that illiquid sell-off and the, the defaulting? Or is it some other part of the market this time?
0: So I don't know exactly how it would end for crypto. Uh, but we can look to the past because this is leverage that's involved. It's, it's leverage that's going to be causing it. And this is forward-looking because we're at the beginning of the levering of Bitcoin. So in general, leverage is your friend when it's going your way. It's a disaster when it goes against you. And the more leverage you have, the more intense those feelings are, both on the upside and the downside. So we're at the beginning of a leverage cycle, so I don't know how far this goes. In fact, today, there's been another development on Bitcoin. The uh, Basel regulators are now going to be incorporating Bitcoin into banking regulations in terms of the capital that a bank has to hold against Bitcoin. And it sounds like it's going to be a one-to-one. So every dollar of Bitcoin that a bank has on its balance sheet, you have to reserve for it. That means it's not going to be popular with banks, but at least it's in the framework now of official lending. Once you get a legal framework, then you can build around it to the shadow banking. So if a bank has to pay X to finance their Bitcoin and a junk bond company has to pay X plus, you can factor in a whole range of possibilities of leverage and what it will cost to do that. Once you have that framework down, then you can really start the levering process. So if this goes as the other asset classes went, I'd say it goes on for a long time, at least four years, maybe 10, and you'll see increasing leverage. And eventually that leverage comes back to bite people and everything tends to go down at once because when you're leveraged as an investor and you get margin calls, you sell whatever you can, not what you want to. And so that means you'll sell your Bitcoin, you'll sell sell your gold, you'll sell your stocks, you'll sell your bonds. It doesn't matter as long as it's liquid and you can get your hands on it to meet the margin calls. That's what you sell. That's what causes these waterfall declines is when the leverage gets taken away after the leverage has already grown. I can't say for sure exactly how that's going to play out because we're just at the beginning of this levering. And,
1: and do you think the, the Fed will do yield curve control with the deficit blowing out? Um, is that sort of on the horizon just to keep this whole credit cycle going?
0: They'd love to, whether they can do it in, pr- in practice is another, is another thing, because sometimes when they have tried to impact the slope of the yield curve, it's done the opposite of what they wanted. And that's because the banks are such big owners of treasuries. Sometimes they'll sell when the banks want them to buy. Right now, the banks are, uh, sometimes they'll sell when the Fed wants them to buy. Right now, the banks are buying. But if the Fed tries to be too onerous and makes the banks want to sell, that's a negative outcome. I think the Fed's learned their lesson and they will just want to let the banks be and let this thing kind of work out organically. But we've just begun the process of terming out this debt that we issued for the pandemic, going from treasury bills, very short maturity under a year, to 5, 10, 20, 30-year maturities, which is the thing to do with a low-yield environment. You want to term out that debt, so you lock in these low yields. But as that process goes along, there could be bumps in the road. I think there will be bumps in the road, but I think there'll be just that, bumps and not crises because I don't think the Fed will let another crisis happen for a little while.
1: Yeah, it, it, you've been spot on about this whole thing for uh, 10 years now. So <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to, to watch your thesis play
0: out. It's going to be a fun um, 10 years ahead.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, if, if you're right, I, I'm hoping. Uh, but uh, one thing I want to make sure that everyone gets your information, because... I want, I want you, you to really grow your brand because I know you, you don't do much uh, media. So if they want to reach out to you, where, where can they find you?
0: I'm at uh, Brian R at brynoldstrategy.com. And we're an institutional firm. So it's not like we have a whole lot of retail following. Uh, most of my work has been always on the institutional side. And that's why I don't do a lot of media because it just doesn't generate any clients or do anything for the clients. You have been a client of mine in the past. Uh, full disclosure we've known each other again for a decade so i love getting getting together with you and talking about it about it because you know my work we can discuss this on a high level and what my re- work really does it's from an institutional viewpoint how those institutions decisions affect markets so some so retail people like that some don't but that's 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 how it works
1: yeah i'm trying to get these high net worth crypto guys to become clients i appreciate that so we could we can kind of bridge the gap is sort of doing it's all way, good block, brian really appreciate you uh taking the time and always
0: great catching on man. thank you